Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor Eric Crawford, formerly director of the Charles W. Joyner Institute for Gullah and African Diaspora Studies at Coastal Carolina University, and currently director of the Honors Program at Benedict College. With that introduction, Eric, welcome to the Journal. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Our listeners always want to know something about our guests. Where are you from, and how did you get here to South Carolina? Well, I'm a, a Virginian, I guess. Um, I, I spent um, my formative years there. I went to um, college there, and I was um, I became fascinated with this culture. I had a, a master's student who was doing a, a, this thesis on something called Gullah, and so as I began to read her thesis, I became intrigued by these songs that I knew as a young child. You know, um, I know by knows the troubles I've seen, mm-hmm. Bo Jordan Roll coming from this island, St. Helena Island, and I knew nothing about the island or the Gullah Geechee culture. So thus, I began my quest to know more about this culture and how and why it was sort of hidden from me. That is a story in itself besides the music. So where did you do your training? Where did you go to college and where your graduate degrees? Norfolk State University, um, my, uh, B, my BA there, and also my master's degree. And I went to Catholic University for my own PhD. So your, your, your doctorate is in music. It is, musicology. Okay. All right. Well, I, sh- I should have guessed that because a good portion of this book are uh, literally the music. Yes, indeed, it is. All it right. Is. So you, you did your dissertation on spirituals. Right, on spirituals. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting. I, um, part of me wanted to call this about the American chant because these songs, uh, this body of sacred texts, um, is really fundamental to the American, the African-American church and also to uh, song making throughout this uh, country. What about the use of the term spirituals? That sometimes is viewed by some African-Americans as derogatory, uh, by whites as patronizing, cloying. But you use the term and there's a historical reason for that. Yes, it's, you know, it's amazing how that term and, um, has you know, on both sides of that of being good or bad, but, or, or even actually more so Negro, because that, that term seems to be kind of um, that historical term goes all the way back. But it is tied to the uh, enslaved who experienced um, unheard um, uh, tragedies and, and born from there create this body of, of, of our songs. And so for me, keeping that term, Negro spirituals, is uh, vital. A- and moving, I think, also to just simply Gala Geechee music, which, you know, th- that this culture is really sort of the home of the spirituals. You mentioned early on hearing uh, Roll Jordan Roll and Down by the Riverside and Nobody Knows the Trouble I've, I've Seen. They do come from the Sea Islands. I did tell you I played the piano because we both talked about that earlier. Those three were included in a publication called American Folk Music. Yes. And they were termed Negro spirituals. Uh, but they were included along with O Susanna and, and what have you. But you connect the spirituals in use of the term to worship. It was an important part of the worship of black South Carolinians when they were enslaved. And then they were free and in some cases, a very important part of the civil rights struggle. Indeed. You know, they, uh, we oftentimes don't think about the uh, spirituals in terms of their liturgical purposes, you know, in this, either the invisible church, by church in the, in the brush harbors, or in their, this small structure called the Empress House, or even in their own church. 
But each spiritual had a purpose, be it for baptism, for communion. And so if you talk to Galagichi singers, they'll say, no, that song is for communion. That song is for a funeral. And so they had a purpose and very, very unique. And so to me, very much like a, a, a Catholic chant, you know, this is going to be something, the um, Kyrie or the Gloria for the um, Mass, they had a um, purpose. And that by itself is, for me, was eye-opening to understand that these slaves were very careful. Yes, they were uh, modeling their, their white to master's church and the things they heard, but when they went back and they kind of created their own songs from the fragments they heard from the Young Bible, they adhere to a purpose for each each song. All right. You, you have divided your book into the different kinds of spirituals as you looked at them musically. So let's just kind of walk through your book, if we will. Okay. You have rowing music. Now, let's just talk about where this came from. How or why did this particular form of music come? That's probably my favorite chapter, that and the civil rights chapter that we'll talk about. But uh, these, you know, having a boat carrying passengers from Charleston, perhaps down to the uh, lower parts of uh, South Carolina or to uh, Georgia. And these men, oftentimes called stout, you know, who would row the boat for them, uh, you know, carrying these huge bags and things. And there was a patroon who was the song leader. And so oftentimes this is a unique example of a form of a work song that gave these enslaved some freedom. There's a uh, story in a book about um, there's a trip going from uh, Charleston, and a, a passenger named um, Ralph is drunk. He's given these these rowers a hard time, you know, I can imagine. And so as the boat as the boat pulls off, the patroon begins his song, and they're going to row in time, you know. And he's saying, you know. We're going to leave Charleston and the, the ruin. We're going to leave Charleston. Then he says, oh, Ralph, he takes too much toddy and the rowing. And then he says, and he won't let us naughty. So they're commenting directly on the passenger. Nowhere else could that have happened but in this environment. You know, you, the, you're going and, and the wind is going and the, and the waves are going. And these men can directly sing about what they're unhappy about. And the the Sea Islands and actually all of coastal Carolina, the way they got, they didn't usually did not go by horseback. (laughs) They went by boat. Yes, indeed. And as you said, these were were large, frequently called bateaus. Yes, indeed. That might have a rowing crew of four or six. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, Michael rowed the boat ashore, Mm -hmm. the most famous one. And Mm -hmm. you know, when you think about these rowing songs, think about if if it was. if there was no wind and it was a heavy tide, then as you would row and sing, the song would be slower. Mm. So it could be, Michael, row the boat ashore, or faster, it would be faster. So that, that's kind of intriguing of how that would change that speed of each song. And, and of course, that Michael, row the boat ashore uh, became a number one hit back in the 1960s with a group called the Highwaymen. Indeed. <laughs> and civil rights, it became an anthem there as well. Let's just re- you recite those lyrics. I remember, you know, Michael rolled the boat ashore. Hallelujah. hallelujah. And, Michael rolled the boat ashore. Hallelujah. And uh, um, um, there's an account of September Clark singing that song when she's uh, jailed in uh, Tennessee. And Guy Carawan hears that song. And, and that causes him to really become uh, committed to civil rights and using this music for the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, uh, Septima Point St. Clark was one of the, the heroines of the civil rights Indeed. movement in, in South Carolina, one of the pioneers in the civil rights movement. Yes. But as an undergraduate back in the mid-60s, yes, the highwaymen came to our college, did a, did a concert. They were all white. Right. They adapted that. It actually was their side B. It it was. <laughs> yes. It, it was their side B. And but it became it became somebody played it up in New England and it caught on. Yes. Um, Pete I think Pete Seeger uh, is an account that this famous book, and this is sort of the beginning of Negro Spirituals, Slave Songs of the United States, which is a book that captures a St. Helen Island songs. It was in some a library and someone finds this song. And that's how you know it became so unpopular. And and actually, the uh, Howard Man almost note for note, you can go back to the original 1867 version, and it's right there. Amazingly, that is amazing. It is. <laughs> and I wish we could play their version on the air, but there are copyright issues with sure. with 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 doing theirs. Right. Uh, by any chance, is that particular spiritual on your CD that you recorded? Yes. In fact, you know, that was one question. I, I, I heard no one sing that a spiritual on St. Helen Island. I would ask them, no, you know, we don't sing it, until um, one of my oldest singers, uh, James Garfield Smalls, Deacon James Garfield Smalls, sang that a spiritual one day. I said, oh, please stop. Let me record you. And, um, you know, of course, he, he passed away last year at age 100. But, um, you know, he learned that song from hearing others. And so we have him, I believe, on our, on our CD singing that. Of course, the 1960s saw a, a revival of folk, all sorts of folk music. All of these white performers did covers of not just Michael Roll, The Boat Ashore, but all sorts of, of spirituals. Uh, it was taken out of context because they were songs of sometimes despair, sometimes of, of worship, but they were performed as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's always, I think, the, a spiritual lends itself to many occasions. And I think one of the things that I think is unique that it does, it always speaks, though it was born of pain and, and uh, suffering, there's still a, an inherent hope there. Hope for a better day, hope um, when I get over Jordan. And that's why many times you hear someone say that these enslaved seem happy to be singing. Well, perhaps they were happy, but, but there was always a sense of despair, yet a sense of one day we'll be free and happy. And so I think those folk singers saw that, yeah, we shall overcome, you know, is a, is a slow, sad piece, actually, you know, but... This a sense as you see them marching or, or holding hands, that sense of one day will be free and happy and overcoming. Of course, for enslaved uh, African Americans in South Carolina, they weren't supposed to be taught the Old Testament. Clergy were discouraged from teaching the Old Testament uh, because they'd rather they be taught St. Paul slaves obey your masters rather than let my people go. But obviously, the enslaved of South Carolina learned the Old Testament because you've, you've got, go down Moses, let my people go. Yes, indeed. And I think that the slaves were, you know, uh, there, there are accounts that Harry Tubman couldn't read or write, but they were clever in understanding what was happening around them. And so as they would observe their a master's church service, they would understand what was happening. And they said, you know, there's, they'll see, yes, but these Jews are being freed. Why aren't we being freed? 
So as we went back to their praise house or brush harbor, they would comment in song and in, in speech. And, and so there, there was a sense of understanding of the bigger picture. Though they're stuck here now, they, they would understand that. And the, their accounts of, of, the, of the white minister coming and telling them, please obey your masters, then the black preacher would come. And he was forced to oftentimes say the same things. But they would understand in his oration a difference. Mm-hmm. And understanding that though they're being forced to abide by this, that there's a sense of what's actually true. Mm-hmm. And that was always center was actually true. Prior to the American Revolution, there was very little effort made to take Christianity to those who were enslaved. Mm-hmm. On, on the eve of the revolution, it began. Uh, and then in the 19th century, it became a major project of all the denominations in, in, in South Carolina. And despite the law, because after the Denmark Vesey plot of the 1820s that uh, set white South Carolinians' teeth on edge that they thought this was going to become another Haiti, there was not supposed to be any gatherings of African-Americans without a white person present. But white South Carolinians could compartmentalize things. And by the time you get to the 1850s, particularly in the Episcopal Church, they are building chapels for their enslaved persons and are letting the enslaved lead the services. It's it's a, an amazing conundrum, but it was true. And in the Sea Islands, they have the praise houses, which were usually built by the enslaved themselves, not always a gift from the master. And, and they're small for that same reason. Only so many could fit in that small structure. And there was that control. And I think the, the white masters were concerned that slaves would, would be leaving during the nighttime going to the brush harbor. So they built these. And it, it's actually praise, P-R-Y apostrophe S being a prayer house. And so they would meet there, and that's where we get this remarkable West African tradition of the ring shout. Well, let's, let's talk about the ring shout because okay. that was a, a celebration, a carryover from West African traditions, and it was used as an example by white clergy and others about they're not really serious about their Christianity. They've got to be frozen as us Presbyterians or us Episcopalians. But yes. So the idea of having joy in a service in most white denominations wasn't considered acceptable. Right. And joy and that sense of exuberance and uh, Sponta- emotion. Spontaneity. Spontaneity, right. And so the uh, enslaved, in response to that, would say, okay, now, we will do this dance, this, counter- this counterclockwise dance, but our feet can't come off the ground. Okay, and it has... And the, it has this um, three plus three plus two. Of it's, this a, it's a three-two beat, right? Right. Yeah. And so you you have this beat going, and and my older singers still on the island can can tap one beat and do this pattern, and it's amazing to hear them do that still today, you know. And so some call it the, the a Charleston clap, or you know, yeah. but this is fundamental to this West African tradition. These praise houses were small, yes. although I'm glad you said the way that they were intended, P-R-A-Y apostrophe S, because most people think P-R-A-I-S-E house, where praise did take place. <laughs> yes. But there are several that are still extant on St. Helena Island. Describe, describe them for us. 
Um, I recall my first time going to the Jenkins Brace House. There, there are three, Jenkins, um, Coffin Point, and uh, Croft. And going in inside on Jenkins, and there, oh my gosh, if you take seven steps, you're probably <laughs> through it. Um, and they have small benches there. And there's a, a prayer house or a praise house on leader. And in that Jenkins, we had Dick and James Garfield Smalls. And when you sit there, they're first begin by reading a young scripture and then doing a hymn lining, which, which was a, a carryover when slaves could not uh, read. You would um, say a um, biblical passage, and then they would sing a tune that everyone knew. A song in response? In response, yes, indeed. And how long that house would fit how many, the one you're talking about. They would, now, I've heard accounts of 60, 70 getting in there. I don't know how it was possible, but typically maybe 20. <laughs> and, um, but this was their entertainment, you know, be it a Sunday, a Tuesday night, Thursday nights, or Sunday nights. They would then move the benches off to the side to do this ring shout. And my first time going to one, I recall being there and hearing Dick and James Garfield Small sing, I couldn't hear nobody pray. And at that moment, I could sense my ancestors. I could sense the old slaves there in his voice and in the clapping patterns and those who were responding. And I knew instantly this culture was really a direct link to the West and Central African past. In the antebellum period, the spirituals were used as a form of resistance. As I remember the work of Patricia Nichols and 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 some of the others, the tempo could send a message. If it were fast, upbeat, that was a sign of danger. Yes, indeed. If it were slow and mournful, maybe it was meant to be, but it could also mean somebody is trying to get away. Yeah. And, you know, that's always of interest, all those secret codes. And I, I argue that um, oftentimes the secret was in their dialect. You know, you, you hear Gullah speakers, and they can go to a language, and I don't know what's happening. You know, it's, a, it's, it's almost like a, a foreign tongue. So, so they, are, they were able to disguise themselves oftentimes by their words and that accent, mm-hmm. which can be very, very fast and very, and very unique. Mm-hmm. And so there are many ways that slaves were just ingenious in being able to really um, speak to each other without others knowing it. As Gullah developed as a Creole language, White Carolinians just tended to ignore it. Now, there, there were, we, we know through documentation, yes, there were whites who considered themselves bilingual. They could, they could speak Gullah, but most of them ignored it as slave talk. Yes, yes. But, but as, you, as you alluded to, I've met many white Carolinians who are fluent in Gullah. I taped one who, um, who recalled his, um, I guess she was his black mammy singing the song, and he sang it in perfect Gullah. And, um, but you're right, you know, during the uh, summer months, oftentimes, uh, malaria was a fear for many whites. So they would go inland, leaving those blacks by themselves. And this culture, you know, was kept and, and was, and was uh, very, very strong there. But you know, there was a need for whites and blacks to uh, coexist. So there were no a few words. But um, by far, the blacks really had their own, own language, their own culture. Eric, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Crawford about his book, Gullah Spirituals, The Sound of Freedom and Protest in the South Carolina Sea Islands. We were talking earlier about the slave community in 
South Carolina. And because of the nature of rice culture, and this began in the 18th century, someone might own a hundred enslaved persons, but there were not a hundred enslaved persons on one, and they did use the term plantation, either a working plantation or a home plantation. Working plantation meant that usually the number was about 30 enslaved persons would be in a community by themselves. There may not be a white person or overseer there at all. The low country was pockmarked with, with these communities that were basically all black. And this is where Gullah culture developed and persevered. They could go almost a year without seeing a white person. Right. So they had their own language. Seagrass baskets, the way to make shrimp nets. It's, it's all West African traditions brought here to South Carolina. And I think that um, it's, it's intriguing that even today, you know, some communities are, I mean, you have to really kind of reach <laughs> to find them. And um, they were actually and, um, in, their, in their own, own world. There's a place called Sandy Island, which is in Georgetown County, and you can only get there by boat, even today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these people, you know, had this unique place, kind of free from the Jim Crowism and some of those issues. And so they had their own self-governing area there. On Sandy Island, there was no need for a police officer. There, there were never any uh, crimes there or to um, lock one's door because, you know, there was, there, there, there was no fear of someone um, trespassing your home. And so these were unique areas that kept the culture there and kept it very strong. Well, I referred to white Carolinians being bilingual, but many African-Americans were as well. You, you can go to the old market in Charleston today, and the women who are selling sweetgrass baskets or flowers, when they talk among themselves, they're gullop, but a white person can come up and they switch. Very, very quickly. <laughs> very, very, very quickly. That's an inherited tradition. It is. Um, that code switching um, was important for them. It allowed them to be able to interact with those who were white and yet still have their own culture. The problem is that for this um, generation now, they haven't learned that trick. And so school in school, they, they oftentimes suffer. They, have, they, have, they don't understand that what they're, doing, what they're speaking is a language. And they have to now adapt a new language, standard English. And that code switching becomes an issue with um, school results. Up until the 1950s, when the seacoast began to develop in South Carolina, the Gullah communities were fairly intact. Development, young people leaving, radio has not helped. But if you look at transcriptions of Gullah, and we know that Gullah is a spoken language, it's not supposed to be written, but people are writing Gullah, the Bible Society's New Testament in in Gullah. But if you look at the way it's transcribed now, and there are transcriptions done in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the one now is much more simplified than what it was. In other words, Gullah really was unintelligible to many white folks. Yes. Uh, I had a, um, a scholar, Joe Opala, who came to Coastal Carolina University about three years ago. He taught a Gullah course, a Gullah language course, in the old the old ways. And he would meet these contemporary Gullah speakers who would say, no, no, that's not what we say. That's not our Gullah. And so there is that sense of, a, of it, it being changed, it being um, perhaps... Um, diluted to some extent. Um, I argue that we should understand how Gullah used to be spoken. Uh, there's a, a gentleman, Suma Show at Harvard teaching Gullah. 
And so, you know, it, it is a language that is adapting, changing over time. I think it's important, just like any uh, language, there's a, probably a, um, a pure Spanish as opposed to those who, are, who speak it now. But Gallic Geisha language has merit. It has importance. And being able to understand perhaps the older rules, how they've been changed over time is important. And we are all kind of looking for a Gullah Geechee, um, a grammar book or a book to help us all and, and be, be sort of a guide to teach those who are here now. Well, and I mentioned Patricia Nichols earlier. There, there are scholars who have said, well, this is the way you do it, and you know about there are no verb tenses, there are no pronouns. Uh, but you, it's, it's all in context because it is a spoken language. It is, it is. It's, there are people who say it's dying out. There, there are lots of things to blame. We've, we've talked about development. We've talked about radio, kids leaving the community. But one of the most important institutions in the low country, on the island, sea islands, is Penn School. Yes. And Penn School, at least when it began in the Civil War period and on afterwards, um, had a tenuous relationship with Gullah culture, and you talk about that in your book. I do. You know, at um, Penn School and uh, Alara Town and Rosa Cooley, its its first two principals, are still admired, adored today. And they did remarkable things with these enslaved. You know, if you can imagine, uh, there's an account with Alara Town. She's in her first un- classroom there. She's teaching, and someone just gets up, and they just simply leave and go into the field. And, you know, and, and she can't understand what they're saying, and they can't understand her. And so it was a very difficult uh, situation there, and they chose a very standard northern curriculum, you know, the ABCs and so forth, and, and the geometry and points on a map. And they really forbade the speaking of Galaguchi. That was pivotal. And so for them, it was standard English only, and you had to speak a certain way. And you could not do these emotional songs. That was against, one, their own Christian beliefs, but I'm sure for them it was it was a kind of sense of being uneasy with this West African tradition and this very— They, they thought it was disrespectful. Disrespectful, yes, in a sense. And yeah, you, you, yes, you've got Miss Towns and those, those other New England ladies. It's uh, um, church is not meant to be joyful. And they never belonged to any of the churches there. That's very interesting. They sort of had, I guess they had perhaps their own church, perhaps their home, but they never joined any of those. I mean, they were there for 40 years, but never joined any of the churches there. That's, that, that's interesting. Yes. Penn Center, Penn School was, was and still is an important part of, of African-American life in South Carolina. But they connected early on with Hampton Institute yes. in Virginia, and that had an impact on the development of spirituals. Rosa Cooley came from Hampton to teach, to become the principal at Penn School, and she brought many of her of the uh, former students who graduate from Hampton and then come down to teach at um, Penn, and then those who graduate from Penn would go to Hampton. This sort of um, uh, this sharing there, but Hampton became a symbol of uh, for them education. And then this sense of commitment to go back to Penn to teach others. And these songs also would travel from Penn to Hampton, Hampton to Penn. There are very famous um, Hampton songbooks of um, spirituals that contain St. Helen Island songs. And, and then you also have songs from Hampton transferring to um, Penn School. And sometimes it's, it's hard to tell which came first. <laughs> but um, 
one of the things that is, is important is that those Penn School graduates who are still alive today, you know, the gain degrees for doctors, for teachers, and that was a very strong legacy of Penn. The issue becomes, of course, the uh, culture. You know, those who didn't go to Hampton, those who stayed, those who didn't attend Penn, retained the culture. Those who were at Penn and went on lost the culture but gained an education, better jobs, and um, probably a, a better way of, of, of our life. Well, well, th this was the argument at the turn of the 20th century between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Indeed. Indeed. In fact, both of those men would comment on Penn School. <laughs> well, the spiritualists that came out of Hampton re reflect a strong influence of white hymnody and Christianity, right? Indeed. In fact, there's uh, probably the most famous account, and I'm not sure why, um, is that nobody knows the troubles I've seen in which the uh, choir director at Hampton is holding this slave songs piece from Helena Island, and you know th this piece was ascending up. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And for some reason, he decides to change that pivotal interval to a descending down. Nobody knows. We're not sure why. Okay. What, what example of the Hampton hymnody would be on your CD? As we have um, The Old Sheep Done Know the Road. That's one piece that um, Dickens Smalls is, is uh, singing that came from... Um, from Hampton. Hampton. Well, and um, the, the Islanders think it's, it's on their song, but it, I believe it's actually a, a, a Hampton import. And um, during the World War I, there's a song transcribed by Berlin. It becomes a song of freedom, a hymn of our freedom. Ride on King Jesus. Ride on. That's a piece that um, is on our CDs. And it's um, Dickin, again, Dickin Smalls, I believe, is also singing that one. And you ref made a reference of that to World War I. I do, yes. Um, Natalie Curtis went to um, Penn School, mm -hmm. um, and she heard that these um, former enslaved were drafted into World War I. Mm -hmm. And she goes there, and she sees these men who don't know why they're going off to war. And um, she, she goes back, and she transcribes this song, All Ride On Jesus, and, which is a beautiful melody. And she adapts that song and changes the words. And so initially the, the words were, oh, ride on Jesus, ride on Jesus, ride on conquering king. I want to go to heaven in the morning. But um, in Nellie Curtis's um, version of uh, ride on Jesus, she changed it to about going off to war and, and defeating the uh, Germans. And when she goes back to Penn School to to do her, it was called the Hymn of Freedom. Um, and Old Allender recognizes the old tune and begins to sing the old right on King Jesus piece there. And um, there's an account that when they heard the old song, those who had been drafted um, felt okay. They felt a sense of, of relief that, you know, again, these songs bring that sense of, in the end, it'll be okay, regardless of going off to this, um, this um, white man's war and going somewhere else, there, it'd be okay in the end. And actually, the U.S. Army selected an African-American to sing spirituals as a morale booster. 
Joshua Blanton, my favorite person. He um, was principal at Tom Voorhees. Um, and he was from Penn School, had come from Hampton, taught at Penn School, and was part of this famed St. Helena Island Quartet. He was a lead tenor. And um, he was encouraged by um, the Army and I'm sure by others to help in the racial relations between blacks and whites in the Army. There were some issues with the, those blacks who felt that, that they were being mistreated. Mm -hmm. And so they asked him to come and probably in a sense of let's kind of um, make sure that the blacks see someone like them in, in front singing these songs that will calm them down, you know. And, but being more than just this Uncle Tom figure, He's able to sing these songs, like the Hymn of Freedom and other songs, giving these blacks uh, a sense of pride in their own culture. And the army sees that the blacks and the white soldiers get along better. They seem to enjoy these songs together, and they're probably separated you know, side by side. This music you know, brings them all together. And for Blanton, he says, in account, he says, these songs that kept you when we were uh, enslaved will still keep you on the um, battlefield as well. And so the army includes uh, two spirituals in, in their army songbook, but also hires other Negro song leaders, as they were called, to come and teach and sing songs for these troops, black and white troops. You mentioned the phrase Uncle Tom, and by World War I, there were people who wanted to forget about in the culture of the enslaved, of course, in white literature, yes, it was full of Uncle Toms. There were there were happy folks singing on the plantation, singing on the plantations, mm. and for those who are calling themselves the New Negro, particularly in the years after World War One, you just weren't supposed you were supposed to forget all of that. Yeah, and you had these eighteen um, nineties into the fifth uh, century. You had these college, these black college choirs were singing very formal spirituals, you know, and um, the, the Fisk singers, Fisk singers, Hampton singers who were, again, had a, had a very important function to, to raise money for their institute, you know, for their institutions and to help build and so forth. And they did remarkable things, but yet they changed the language. And part of my point in, in the, in the, in the book is, you know, we, yes, we kept the um, melodies and we kept the rhythms oftentimes but be left behind the actual language. You know, why? And, and for some singers, they would say, well, they would argue, you know, this, these words are ugly. They don't sound well when you sing them. And I, and I state that um, there was nothing pretty or about slavery. And to extract this language, the pathos, you know, the, the pain of, of these words here from this uh, music alters them, changes them, and you lose something. Yes, it, it was supposed to be in good New England English. <laughs> yes, indeed. As you said, the black colleges, uh, Allen had a, a choir. And actually, there were faculty at Allen who were beginning to accumulate records of slave music in the 1920s. Right. And, of course, in Charleston, you have the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals, which is all white folks. All white folks. And, and I'm, I'm writing this article right now on this society and um, very complex issues. You know, they're dressed in antebellum dress <laughs> and they performed before um, President Roosevelt and they were singing these, these Negro songs very, very well, very well. And they were transcribing these songs accurately. But there were still whites who were remembering their black mammy 
their black playmates and sort of almost remembering the old South and celebrating that. And that becomes the issue there, you know. But yet they were committed to the a language. I mean, they were they could speak fluent Gullah. And if you hear uh, in that time period, someone um, black singing and somebody from the society singing, it's hard to tell them apart. It truly is. Eric, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Eric Crawford about his book, Gullah Spirituals, The Sound of Freedom and Protest in the South Carolina Sea Islands. As we get on into the 20th century, this issue about the role of spirituals becomes even more conflicted. And then it's rediscovered in the civil rights. It is. And um, Guy Caravan is, is a pivotal figure. Um, there's so many others who are um, as important. And it, it becomes, there are those who are younger who want to do um, the um, Nia Simone songs or James Brown songs because it, it, it speaks to them. That was a current thing there. And, you know, there were those who weren't. Alan Lomax and Guy Caravan and Bernice um, Reagan Johnson, who, who were saying, now, these are songs that, these are spirituals, were songs that were important a century ago and can still be as effective now. You know, this sense of communal singing, it takes one hearing of one line to know how that song goes in a spiritual. It takes one hearing to understand how that spiritual goes. And so we have, you know, if you're doing a song which is done on the civil rights, whose side are you leaning on? Response, leaning on the Lord's side. Who's you're leaning on, leaning on the Lord's side, and you know how it goes from, from there. And these songs prove effective because, you know, if you're at a, um, a lunch counter and you're sitting in, the song called the a Welcome Table, and very simple song, easy to learn. And when you're in the middle of chaos, of being spat upon, of being hit, you know, these simple songs, this communal song, these songs proved vital. And um, for the civil rights movement, it becomes the soundtrack of that time. Well, uh, let's talk about the evolution of We Shall Overcome, That's because the original Gullah translation was I Will Overcome. That's right. And I, I think you... You've mentioned that during the one of the uh, strikes at the tobacco, uh, the cigar factory, cigar factory, right. cigar factory in Charleston, uh, they used this song, but they made it we, we, but it still was will. It was a white folklorist who changed it to shell. Right. I think Pete Seeger might have added that um, to uh, I shell, and um, some say it's based upon a, a Charles Tinley hymn, but um, that has that was truly the um, anthem of the movement. And there is a count that Pete Seeger um, begins singing it, and he has his uh, guitar. And those who were there, those blacks who were there, were uh, very, they were kind to him. But, you know, when someone black would sing it, it was kind of a different take on it. And so uh, oftentimes you would have a group singing that piece. And, but that We Shall Overcome Someday truly be became for many that, that hope for freedom leading up to the Civil Rights Act. Afterwards, you know, there was this black power movement, and for many that ended the uh, spiritual use in the uh, civil rights struggle. Well, you mentioned your experience in, in Beaufort. You went to a, a black church okay. for service, and you expected to hear spirituals. Right. You didn't. 
Right. You heard modern church music. I was gung-ho to find this great culture still in the 1860s. (laughs) And I get to the church, and I have my recorder hidden under my coat. And I hear gospel songs and or or Europeanized hymns. I'm thinking, well, where is the culture here? And I realized that um, it's changed. And then this kind a woman, I said, you know, I was kind of sad. And she said, well, listen, if you want to hear the old songs, go to the prayer house. And that's where I went. And that was on Sunday night. Yes, Sunday evening. After the more formal yes, church. Yes, after the formal church. <laughs> Indeed. And... and um, for many, even now on the island, that seems they see it as a as a relic of the old past, and to be perhaps forgotten about. And I, I hope that this book and the songs and much more attention on this Galagichi culture, they will understand it's vital. You know, this is as priceless as as a um, a Da Vinci painting. You know, it's critical, and to really um, celebrate. It, understand that the enslaved left this rich, vital culture that we need to embrace and and study more. Well, as a young person going to church camp in, in Alabama, Jacob's Ladder was a standard, as was down by the riverside. Yes, and uh-huh. of course my uh, mentor, Charles Joyner, uh, one of the first to really enlighten everyone about the important contributions of Gullah culture. And, and I try and really kind of define where I am with, with what he kind of um, prepared for us all. Everywhere that I would go, someone would say, well, Charles has been here already. <laughs> <laughs> and he's such a, an important figure for me at Coastal Carolina University and, and even now in my career. Well, uh, y- you mentioned hearing white South Carolinians today speak beautiful Gala. Well, as Patricia Nichols did in her study, uh, when we talk, of, and this was, of course, Charles Joyner, one of his, his ideas, uh, shared culture, uh, that in the low country of South Carolina, the native whites, particularly in the Georgetown area, not so much the words, but the lilt in their ordinary speaking is a West African lilt. Oh, it is. Lilt. It is. And not only that, as we all know, words have, you know, whether it's goober or biddy, all of these have come into the white culture and they are West African. They are. And uh, I think it's it's just giving an, a identifying, you know, um, where they come from, origins. You know, we tend to want to, and it's great, it's a, America is a great melting pot. But there should still be areas that we can tell, though, this is this culture right here. This is what this culture has contributed to the American story. I remember recordings over the years of spirituals, and particularly during the Civil War centennial years in, in eight, uh, 1960 to 1965, uh, the Norman Lubar Choir, the Mormon Temple, they, they did songs north and south, and half the songs would be spirituals, but they're all sung in this concert kind of presentation. And it still goes on today. You can go to churches and all of a sudden the anthem that the choir sings has been transmogrified by some French composer in terms of music. Uh, And it's nothing, to me, the meaning of it's lost. I'm not African-American, but the meaning, it's it's staged. It's not. It it is staged. It does show the uh, flexibility of this this, uh, genre to be able to be um, used in any kind of context. But, you know, there's a sense of making them pretty, 
<laughs> yes. palatable to the audience instead of, you know, uh, the sense of, well, yes, let's just do one perhaps as it was done there. This is how it might sound. And the understanding of, of how the enslaved would have, would have done this, um, this song and, you know, be it good or bad, I think that's important. Um, we, we want to um, be happy and, you know, but, you know, for every good movie that has a happy ending, <laughs> there are some that, that try and strive to be as authentic as possible. Okay. If you had to pick one song off of your CD that is sung the way you really like it, the, the really old way, which one would you pick? Probably Adam in a garden picking up leaves. Not to leaves in plural, but you know, um, for the West African language, leaf could be one or several. And it's, it's a shouting song. And this is probably one of the most famous of these shouting songs because you pantomime bending down, getting your leave. And it's, it's just a uh, wonderful representation of the enslaved taking this story from, from the uh, Bible, mm. adapting it to their own culture. Okay. Well, when you talked about that, I thought back to my camp experience again, and us white kids were taught to to do the motions with the songs we were singing. Yes. And now, wh where where the camp people picked it up, I don't know. But that's right. and of course, uh, Kumbaya, which is a, a piece that was recorded in the twenties on the islands, is probably the most famous piece. You know, and when I first met Ron Days, who's a famous actor, he said, "You're a Kamya. I'm like, what's a Kamya mean? <laughs> Meaning, I'm coming there. I'm a, a, a visitor. And he was a Binya. And so, Kambaya is about coming and, of course, you know, uh, Christ coming and the, and the, and the uh, Spirit coming. And it's, it's one of those pieces that the society transcribed. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, it was, uh, they would say, somebody needs you, Lord. Somebody's praying, Lord. Kambaya. And they wouldn't actually begin by saying come by here, but it would be somebody needs your Lord, someone's praying Lord. And that was sort of, and, and that was sort of their favorite piece to perform. This is now being the Society for the Preservation of um, Spirituals. But um, it became a campfire song, mm -hmm. a song that everyone knows as mm -hmm. being a, the um, quintessential kind of um, spiritual. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Gotcha. We've got a few, just a few minutes left. Okay. Any last words that you'd like to leave for our listeners about color spirituals? I hope that, um, one, that um, you're hearing this word perhaps for the very first time and that you understand just how, how important it is, this Gullah culture, and how these songs, you know, kind of emigrate from this one place, this St. Helena Island, and how the Gullah culture has impacted every major event in the American story, from prohibition to World War I to, of course, slavery, civil rights, and even now. And so it's, it's important that we hopefully take time and to reassess and reevaluate history mm -hmm. and include hopefully some little area there for the Gullah culture. All right. Well... Eric Crawford, the author of Gullah Spirituals, The Sound of Freedom and Protest in the South Carolina Sea Islands. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much for having me here. Our pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. 
Eric Crawford is a musicologist. He's not a historian, but his book is an important contribution to the history of South Carolina. South Carolina's history for more than 350 years has been a culture of shared traditions. And South Carolinians, black and white, have been impacted by the culture of the West Africans who came to this state enslaved. It's all a part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.